Welcome to Anorak, the happy podcast for kids. We have questions, we have experts to answer them, and we also have some jokes. Why can't you play hide and seek with a mountain? Because they're always peeking. episode we're off to the mountains my name is sky rosalind I live in the highlands of Scotland and like to climb mountains because of the adventure for it and maybe I can bring my sledge and slide back down. I've climbed in Sri Lanka one big hill and I've climbed it twice, one at night and one in the morning. Mummy sometimes calls me a mountain goat because I climb so high and so fast. My name is Dr. Fabia. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I am a physician as well as a professional rock climber. In the rock climbing world, there are many different types of climbing. There is climbing with a rope, climbing without a rope, climbing on ice. I'm a boulderer, so that means that I do not use a rope. I fall on something we call a crash pad. It is a four to five inch dense foam, kind of like a small mattress that we carry on our back and that we land on when we fall. However, if you do fall from 30 feet, that crash pad is not going to do much I discovered rock climbing just by luck. I had been visiting my family in Nashville and I didn't have any friends there because they moved there when I was in college. And so I had been going to the movies and the mall nearly every day. I had seen everything in the theaters, some even twice. So I Googled things to do in Nashville and rock climbing came up. I dragged the one person I knew in the state (laughs) to the gym and we tried it and I fell in love. I instantly knew this was the sport for me. So climbing indoors is very different from climbing outdoors. I climbed in a gym for a whole year before I even knew there was climbing outdoors. People in the gym would ask me, do you want to go outside? And I would ask, why do I want to climb on plastic outside? I thought they had attached holds to like a tree. (laughs) And you climb that. I was so naive to the whole outdoor world because I'd never been in the outdoors before I was a climber. So I couldn't comprehend. So I said no. And then eventually I actually started dating someone who was a climber and he said, I'm going to take you outside. And I was like, okay, I don't know about this. And he took me to a local crag and a crag is the term we use to describe an area where you rock climb where there were rocks with no holes pasted on them. (laughs) And I walked up and I said, well, where are the holes? How am I supposed to climb this? And he put me on the easiest thing. And I said, I don't understand. (laughs) 
that was my first time, but I was very intrigued and I wanted to figure out how it worked. And that is what kept drawing me into going outdoors to the point where now I actually climb outdoors more days a week than I go to a gym. What motivates me to climb is pure joy. When I'm climbing, I just feel pure joy and happiness. And I just want to feel that again. So I go again. And I think there is a lot of fear in climbing and conquering that fear also motivates you to go again because there's no feeling like, oh, last week I couldn't do this because I was too weak or too afraid. But now this week, because I've worked hard and I've trained and I've planned about this climb, like I thought about it, I jumped about it. (laughs) And now this week I can do it. And standing on top of that rock, there's pretty much nothing in the world that compares for me. So that's what motivates me. I am seven years old and I live in England and here are my questions. How many years have you been rock climbing? I have been climbing since 2010. I had to take a couple year break to undergo treatment for cancer. So I had many surgeries and chemotherapy. But since then, I have been climbing for eight years straight. Hi, my name is Rory. I'm 11 years old from the United States. My first question is, what is hangboarding? Hangboarding is a training tool that rock climbers use to get their fingers strong. Um, In some countries, it's also called fingerboarding. So there is usually a piece of wood or it can be made from plastic and there's different size in cuts. They can be 30 millimeters, 15 millimeters, five millimeters, and you can hold on, hang on them with your fingertips in different positions. So you can use one finger, two fingers, three fingers. We have different hand positions like pinches, slopers, full crimp, half crimp. And so on this board, you can actually train all of those positions for your fingers. And this is how we get our fingers strong. Hangboarding can be done anywhere. I have several hangboards at home and a lot of more serious climbers have hangboards at home. I also have a portable hangboard. So I can take that hangboard to the crag with me or when I'm traveling, I can bring it with me because I like to hangboard a minimum of once a week. As a rock climber, having strong fingers is super duper important and you can train them to get stronger and bigger. There's mostly tendons in your fingers and that is what we are training. It takes years for your tendons to get strong. So we recommend that you only start hangboarding after you've been climbing for a couple of years so that they've had a time to catch up, to be able to not break when you put all the force on them when you hangboard. Do you free climb a lot? I only free climb. Free climbing is a general term to describe climbing without aid. So there is aid climbing where you can kind of attach like a small little rope ladder and you can kind of climb up that to the rock. Or if you attach something and you just pull yourself up on the rock on a really hard part because you can't climb it yourself. 
So sport climbing, track climbing, bouldering, those are all free climbing. And as a boulderer, I don't use a rope, so I don't have a belayer. It's just me on the rock. What is the hardest route you've ever climbed? The hardest problem I've ever climbed is Chung Li. It's a V11 located here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It is a low ball roof traverse. So by low ball, I mean I all the hard parts of the problem don't I was not many feet off the ground. So that's what low ball means. It means that you're not too many feet off the ground. And it was a traverse because I kind of, I traversed across this cave in the mountain. It was probably about 20, 30 feet long. It took me several minutes to climb it. It was a very cold day. There were icicles on the rock. So I actually lost feeling in my fingers halfway through. (laughs) But it was fantastic and it was fun. And I even had like an asthma attack when I was done because I was breathing so hard in the cold. It was a good time. What does it feel like when you're climbing? While I'm climbing, there are many feelings. When I step up to a rock, I'm excited. Like, oh my goodness, this is going to be great. And then I might start climbing and I'll say like, ooh, this isn't as fun as I thought. Or, oh, this really hurts. A lot of times this, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. Keep moving through it because we are smashing our fingertips against sharp, cold, or hot rock, which is uncomfortable. And you cut your skin, you bruise yourself. And so there is kind of a lot of pain that you have to ignore while you're climbing. And then I'll do something that's just so much fun that I won't remember any pain. And I'll find myself on the top of the rock and I just feel complete happiness. And then eventually the pain will come rushing back. (laughs) Why do you like this job? I love being a professional rock climber because, well, I love exercise and I, I love training. I love pushing myself to the physical limit and to the mental limit because Physically, I have to hold on to holes that are only a few millimeters thick with my fingertips. And I have to throw my body to catch one of those small holes, you know, many feet off the ground. And that is physically demanding, but it's also mentally demanding. And so I love that combination of it just being a demanding job using your brain and body. I have my eyes set on a climb in Waco Tanks, which is the birthplace of bouldering in the U.S. Our grading scale is actually based on a guy who climbs in Waco, and he made it there. So there is a famous cave called Martini Cave, and I am working on Wright Martini. It is a V12, and it is many moves long, probably about 35 moves. It will take me about four minutes to climb it. So because of that, I do have a specialized training plan because the holes are very small. So I'm working on keeping my fingers strong. There is one very big move where I have to throw off some tiny holds to a very big hold, but is at my max arm length capacity. 
And then I have to get my endurance up because it will take me four minutes to climb it. And as a boulderer, we generally climb from like 30 seconds to a minute. So several minutes is on the long side for us. If you're a sport climber, they can climb up to like an hour or so. Um, but for a climber, four minutes is long. So I'm working on that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I am Deshaun Daisel, Bestery. I am known to be the world's first black female high altitude mountaineer. I started climbing at the age of 25. It's now nearly 26 or 27 years ago. I've got two expeditions to Mount Everest. I have stood on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro four times. And then I've also climbed on a number of other continents, trying to get to the highest point on each of them. And uh, I now run a business, which is a management consultancy and coaching business called Go Peak International. And um, I'm a mom uh, of two kids, Edward and Judith. Edward is 11 and Judith is eight. How I got into mountaineering is actually a very old and long story. And it has a British connection, strangely enough. My grandmother, whose house I spent a huge amount of my childhood in, was very into the royal family. And when Queen Elizabeth got coronated, it was within the same week when Edmund Hillary got to the summit of Everest in 1953. So that story was for my grandmother's generation, a big story. It was something that she specifically had a huge alliance with for some reason. So I have a cousin called Hillary now for Sir Edmund Hillary. And of course, you've heard my husband is Charles. So there's a longstanding connection to all things royal family and Everest. But I grew up with the knowledge and awareness that Mount Everest is there and that people can climb it. Um, and I think as I was growing up with a, a spirit of adventure and a sense of curiosity, I just um, was drawn towards all kinds of stories that had to do with adventure and mountains. So the Everest story of Edmund Hillary was always a National Geographic special. Every five years, they commemorate it. And there'd be some kind of story about it in the documentaries. And I just used to always find a way to watch those when they came around. Because I was born in the 70s in South Africa, TV was new. But uh, throughout the 70s and 80s, I used to always find ways to see the adventure programs. I must also say that my two role models were two cartoon characters called Tintin and Heidi. <laughs> And uh, I guess these two really gave me a sense that it can be done, you know, even though at the time I didn't realize how fictional their characters really were. And so when the first opportunity came along to put the South African flag on the summit of Mount Everest, it just so happened to be in South Africa's new democracy because during the sanctions, we weren't really allowed to many countries and Nepal was one of those places we weren't allowed to travel to. So no South Africans before our democracy had made any attempts on Mount Everest for that reason. So within two years of our democracy, someone saw the opportunity to take a South African flag to Everest. And um, I got selected to be on that team. I went through a selection process. I had to apply. I had to show how well I do in the mountains at high altitude. And I wouldn't say I passed with flying colors, but I, I did well enough to be selected to be on that first team. I had such a singular focus to go and see Everest with my own eyes. And I felt really proud and privileged to be able to be part of such a historic team. We didn't know, obviously, if we we're going to make it or not, because 96 was also 
a moment of a severe disaster that happened on Everest. A book enters an air, a lot of movies and so on have been noted, recorded and written about. So 96 was a watershed moment, a very pivotal time on the mountain. And our team was there for the very first time. So we had no idea actually that we were going to be successful. So there was enough keeping my mind busy <laughs> than to worry about whether I'm the, you know, I knew I'm the only black female. I was probably at that stage, the youngest person on the mountain as well, if you don't count the Sherpa boys, the porters. But I think for me, it was, I tried to count myself as one of them. It was obvious that I wasn't because people were so shocked by the idea that an African female was on the mountain that they'd literally come visit our our campsite just to see if it's true. (laughs) And in those days, the climbing ratio between men and women was terrible. I mean, for every one woman you found, there were 67 men. It was a completely different scenario to what we experience today. What's the highest you've ever climbed? The highest I've ever climbed is on Mount Everest. I made it to 8,300 meters on Everest on my last climb. And the top of Everest is 8,848. So I was about 500 vertical meters from the summit when bad weather turned me back. And I actually did try to go back in 2022, but then COVID came and stopped me from going back to Everest. Typically what I do when I know an Everest expedition is coming up is I start training at least um, 18 months before the time, but you can start two years before the time. So getting to Everest is not a six-month journey. (laughs) Uh, You've got to literally kind of be in tip-top shape. I always say to people, it's a bit like trying to be as fit as an Olympic athlete, but stronger for a longer period of time. Hi, I am Oscar. I am seven and I live in England. What is the scariest animal you have seen on the mountain? I think some other climbers can come across as scary animals. But no, I mean, some mountains do have animals. If you go to Europe, you'll see some beautiful mountain goats on the slopes of Mont Blanc and places like that. But they're not scary. They're not dangerous at all. If you climb in North America, you might come across a bear if you're in the wrong mountain or at the wrong time. (laughs) But I've never come across anything that made me feel intimidated. If you're in the Himalaya, where Everest is, you'll find some yaks. And yaks can be a bit scary, I guess, uh, because they've got massive horns and they're big, big, big animals. And if you're on their path, they're not going to give way for you. So you might have to find a way to get out of a yaks trail, but yaks don't get out of the way for humans. So I guess if I had to pick an animal that I thought was the scariest, it's probably a Himalayan yak. Have you ever done a mountain climbing competition? I know what you're probably thinking about because there are climbing competitions like the sports climbing that you'll do at an indoor sports center. But when it comes to the real mountains that are quite high and icy, you can't compete with people. What you really are competing against is yourself, but you're also competing against Mother Nature. And I think if you really do think you're competing against Mother Nature, then she always wins. So there's no competition in the kind of climbing I do. So I've never competed, really. Hi, my name is Emma. I am 10 years old and I live in England. How do you feel when you reach the top of a mountain? 
Mountain climbing is really hard. It's physically tough. You have to spend a lot of time exercising to make your body strong enough to get to the mountain. And once you're on the mountain, the mountain tests exactly how strong you are. <laughs> and it just doesn't just test your body. It also tests how well you can think yourself through difficult times. So your mental part is also um, challenged. So when you get to the summit of a mountain, to the very top, it really is a feeling, a sense of relief. But I think for most mountaineers, you don't realize what you've accomplished until you're completely down the mountain. So getting to the top, you might feel exhausted, you might feel in pain, you might feel like you can't wait to get down. So there's those kind of thoughts that happen in a climber's mind. Obviously, you try to take in as much view as possible if there is a view, because sometimes it's a bit misty. But it's only really after the climb that one gets to really think about what you've just accomplished, because hopefully then you're in a safe space, you're warm, you're dry, and uh, you're not quite so in pain. So to get to the top of a mountain is a bit of a mixed feeling moment. One of the big realities of climbing is that you don't always make it to the top of a mountain. So one also has to manage how you feel about not making to the top of a mountain sometimes. Most mountaineers will tell you that they've tried three, four, five times. If you're focused enough and you're determined enough and it really is a goal that you want to accomplish, and of course, if you can see that others have done it, then it's possible, right? So you want to try and get to the summit, but sometimes the weather, sometimes your health, sometimes a team member gets injured. So all kinds of things can happen that stops you from climbing any further. And that's happened to me quite a few times. And that's very tough. It's hard to know that you've put all the years of training in. And of course, you take the time and it's a bit of money to spend and so on. And then you get to a point where the mountain says, not today, you've got to turn around and come try again. In the meantime, while there's no real climb on the list, I may go to Kilimanjaro taking a client up in August this year. They're still making up their minds about it. For me, that will be a fifth expedition to Kilimanjaro. So I'm really hoping to put something on my list that I haven't been to. <laughs> my name is Professor Christopher Jackson. I was born and raised in Derby in the UK. I now live just outside of Manchester and I'm a geologist. Geologists are interested in the structure and evolution of the Earth. And what we mean by that is how has the Earth changed over billions of years? So to do this, we have to look at both the rocks that we find um, around us in the hills, but also rocks that are preserved deep beneath our feet. And we also get to look at things like the fossil record, of course, because that tells us about life on Earth. So geology really is this all-encompassing subject where we get to go outdoors, we get to go indoors, we get to do analysis with very high-powered machines looking down microscopes, but then equally we climb to the top of the tallest mountain to go and collect a rock sample of interest. My job, fortunately, has allowed me to travel the world because geology is everywhere on the planet. So I get to look at rocks which are just in the hills behind where I'm sitting now in the Peak District of the UK, but then I've also been to Australia and Argentina, to the Andes mountain range as well, to go and look at geology. So it's one of these subjects which, because the rocks and fossils are everywhere on Earth, we have to go and find them to study them. Hi, my name is Maria. I'm nine years old and I live in England. What inspired you to become a geologist? I was always interested in the natural world around me and, and why the Earth 
looked like it did, why we had rivers, why we had valleys, why we had mountains. And, and geology is the reason for all of that. I would also be really honest and tell you one reason I really got into geology was because I wasn't particularly excited by anything else. And I found lots of other subjects quite difficult at school. But geology was one of the ones which excited me the most and was one of the things that, because of that, I found easiest to do. So I think it's really important sometimes to recognise things that you really enjoy doing. And if you get the opportunity to do them professionally for a job, you follow your heart and your passion and, and see if you can take an opportunity to do it. If you speak to a lot of geologists, they are the types of people who, when they were little, they had a sand pit and they collected rocks and fossils and, and you know, they kind of bored their parents by dragging them along beaches on holidays. And I was not that kid. I was not particularly interested in geology growing up. I came to it later in life, really, having studied a standard set of subjects at school. I suddenly found this thing which I'd never heard of before, but really triggered my interest in the natural world. So, again, you can come into geology in a lot of different ways. It can be something that you've always been interested in. You may always have been interested in dinosaurs. You may always have been interested in volcanoes and earthquakes and minerals and jewels. But equally, you might just come into it because you suddenly have this bigger question in your head is, how did the earth form and how does it keep changing? Which is the most common type of mountain? This is a very, very good question. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is what is a mountain? Because how does a mountain differ to a hill? And I think we probably would all say that a mountain is bigger than a hill, but how much bigger? And there's actually no real answer to that. Because what is one person's hill is another person's mountain. So one thing that has been suggested is mountains have prominent bodies of rock sticking up out the ground, and maybe they're taller than 500 metres. So if you believe that definition that these mountains are bigger than 500 metres, then we can think about what creates mountains of that size. There's a number of different ways, and two ways in which we create mountains is, firstly, by volcanoes. So volcanic eruptions... So the outpouring of lava, these lava flows, as they build up, they build these big triangular masses, which are volcanoes, but they're also mountains because some of these can grow a couple of kilometres tall. Another way in which we build mountains is where we have the Earth's tectonic plates, which move about when they crash together and they bump into each other. And imagine you put your, your hands together and you force your fingers together, they bend upwards. And that's also the building of a mountain. So there are two different ways in which we build mountains. One is by playing bumper cars with the Earth's tectonic plates. And the other way is by having volcanic eruptions. So out of those two ways of building mountains, volcanic eruptions and bumper cars with the Earth's tectonic plates, both of them are perhaps equally as common as each other because we have volcanoes erupting all across the globe. And in fact, we have volcanoes erupting underwater too. But equally, we have large areas of the Earth's um, crust, so the tectonic plates, where plates are clashing together, like the Andes mountain range in South America, like the Himalayas where Mount Everest is as well. So we have these huge areas which are getting mountains built by Earth's plates colliding. But guessing what percentage is due to one process versus the other is actually really, really difficult. How much of the Earth is covered in mountain? Like we said, we have to try and decide what is a mountain versus a hill. So let's take this, this definition that we think mountains are above 500 metres tall. The estimates, so the guesses which have been made of the amount of the earth that is covered by mountains is about 24%. 
So that's about a quarter of the earth is thought to be mountainous. Now, those mountains are not equally distributed across the earth because the geology controls where those mountains are. So there's some countries which are incredibly mountainous, some areas which are incredibly mountainous, such as the Himalayas or the Andes or the northwestern seaboard of the US where we found volcanoes like Mount St. Helens. But then there's other areas which have very low-lying um, terrain. So there's no mountains at all, like the central part of Australia, for example, very, very flat and so not many mountains, but a huge, huge area. So it's about 24% is the estimates globally, but that 24% is not distributed equally around all of the countries on Earth. Have you ever found any jewels? Because I like jewels. If so, what are they? Oh, who doesn't like jewels, Maria, though? I mean, like jewels are awesome, right? They're shiny and they could actually be worth a lot of money, which is the good thing. So where I'm from is in the centre of the UK. One famous sort of jewel or mineral we find there is called Blue John. And it's this very blue, purpley coloured crystal, which forms due to really, really hot water passing through rocks. And this happened millions of years ago. So that's one of the things I remember as a small child going into some of the, the caves in Derbyshire and collecting this really beautiful blue crystal called Blue John, which is made into jewellery and also made into kind of lights and, and lamps as well. So um, I would say Blue John is my favourite mineral that I've ever found, my favourite jewel. One really amazing fossil that I found when I was studying geology was actually in the country of Egypt, and in Egypt, we were looking at rocks which were about 15 million years old. So that sounds quite old, but not really that old, considering the Earth is about 4 billion years old or more. So we were working on these rocks and we found within these rocks shark's teeth. Now, these looked exactly like you imagine shark's teeth would look like, triangles with serrated edges that look like if it got stuck in your arm, it would tear it off. So these look just like modern day shark's teeth, but 15 million year old sharks. I would say that's probably the most exciting fossil I ever found, an ancient animal, which seemingly looks so much like what we find on Earth at present. Find these ancient shark teeth in these rocks that are 15 million years old because sharks were around 15 million years ago and they looked very similar to the sharks we have now. So a lot of these animals we think are, are unique to the time we're living in and have actually been around for a long, long time. It just so happened that these rocks we were looking at in Egypt happened to be marine rocks. So these were rocks that were deposited underwater 15 million years ago in Egypt where there were sharks swimming around and eventually dying, of course. So absolutely amazing windows into our past. Geology is not just rocks and fossils. Sometimes we may have heard a mantra that rocks are boring, but it's not just the rocks we're interested in, it's what's in them. It's the story those rocks tell. And besides that, geology is about so much more than rocks. If you are interested in doing chemistry, there is a space for you in geology. If you want to go on a boat out into the oceans and survey what's down in the middle of the, you know, the Pacific, there's a role for you in geology as well. There's lots of adventure. If you don't want adventure and you want to be based in the lab and you want to do really detailed analytical work, again, there's space for you in geology. Geology provides a home for many different people, very diverse set of skills and interests and just who we are. And so I strongly encourage you to consider it as a future career. 
needed the grandma put wheels on her rocking chair so she could rock and roll. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. And now, a message for the grown-ups. Be sure to stay up to date with our happy podcast series by subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like it that much, feel free to leave a review. Follow our happy news by visiting anorakmagazine.com where you can become a patron and register your child to be a little podcaster for our next series. Oh, and we are on Instagram too at anorakmag. See you soon. Goodbye.